Welcome to the Samuel Andreev podcast. I'm very happy to have with me as my guests today the composer Colin Matthews and also Julian Anderson, who has already appeared on the podcast. And I thought we could have a wide-ranging discussion today about many topics, amongst which are composing for orchestra, the current situation of music in Britain, and anything else that comes up. But first, I'm going to introduce my two guests. So first of all, Colin Matthews, thank you very much for taking the time to appear on this podcast. A pleasure. And thank you, Julian. Pleasure. So Colin is calling from Somerset, and Julian, you are in London, I believe. That's correct. Right. So the first thing I wanted to talk about with both of you, actually, because you have something in common, which is that you've both composed extensively for orchestra. And I want to get a sense of how you see the present day landscape of orchestral composition, because it strikes me that for younger composers particularly, it seems to be becoming increasingly complicated to write for larger formations like of this sort. I wonder if your experience bears that out and how you see the situation of orchestral composition today in 2021. Well, for me, it's something that I've been trying to address particularly by working with the LSO and with uh, what's known as the Panufnik group of composers, because I'm very aware that although composers get a certain amount of conservatoire orchestral experience, you know, once they've left, they're jumping off a cliff and it's very difficult to do more than uh, small ensemble chamber music. So the LSO scheme is to have six composers working for a year on a workshop piece uh, which is played by the full London Symphony Orchestra. Uh, and out of that, there are two commissions um, awarded each year. So that's been one uh, way I've been looking at it. And there are a reasonable number of other orchestras who, who do schemes, but not actually usually using the full orchestra. So it's, it's something I'm very aware of, that it's a very difficult thing for young composers to address. Well, I mean, I try and address it as a as a teacher of composition. Um, I'm very well aware of the fact that composers can find the orchestra intimidating, but I think orchestras are much less intimidating to composers now, and not just in Britain. When I was a kid, there was still, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, in the 80s, there were still members of the orchestra who'd fought in World War II and who had been brought up in a musical world where Vaughan Williams was the summit of modern music, really. And, you know, for them, learning to play Schoenberg under Boulez was already quite something. And they did not like what they saw as, as the norms of contemporary orchestral music uh, very much, many of them, and they were quite resistant to it. Um, now, what happened was that inevitably many of those people, you know, retired shortly after that. Um, I therefore never had the experience really of being played by an orchestra full of such people, though I suspect Colin may have may have well have done so. I certainly did. <laughs> Any, even if they're dead, I still don't want to name names, but I can think of certain specific players who would do anything to trip a, a composer up, frankly. The, the atmosphere wasn't healthy, and I certainly thought, if I ever get to teach composition, I've got to try and change this. And I felt that the change had to come from two directions. On the one hand, we had to have younger players in orchestras who weren't 
uh, unfamiliar with the latest idioms and didn't find them off-putting and didn't have that kind of wealth of just a priori prejudice. But on the other hand, also, I remember very well that uh, in my first years as a teacher, the, the scores that some students would hand in for orchestral performance uh, were, were just totally incompetent. Uh, I mean, I have to say that. They, they showed no idea of the difference in writing, say, a, a Boulez avant-garde piano piece from the 50s, and they'd, they'd orchestrate that way. Well, I mean, Boulez had long since moved on and realized that didn't work on an orchestra. So, Julian, it sounds like what you're saying is that it, there was a certain degree of incomprehension that went in both directions. I think there was bad communication in both directions, and the best orchestral pieces from that period, I mean, earlier than I'm talking about, meaning the 60s, are still very hard to play. I'm thinking of one in particular by Maxwell Davis, which is a piece I admire, and I think Colin admires also very much, called World's Bliss, which is a very violent orchestral work, long too, it's about 41 minutes or something, which is terribly, terribly awkward. I mean, the notation is awkward, it's in funny note values, the barring is quite unlike how it sounds, and it's persistently in very awkward registers for many instruments. And I can probably see that for the idiom of that piece, that was, if not necessary, it's one way of doing it. And perhaps because it was a very new idiom, that was the only way he could do it. I'm not criticizing the piece as such. I think it's a masterpiece, actually. It's a marvelous work. But it is very, it's very hard even now, very awkward indeed. That brings to mind also things such as the premiere of Le Terre Tonum by Brian Furnio, which was done by the Scottish National Orchestra under Elgar Holworth. And you can imagine that at the time, this was 1979, this could not have gone over well with the players that indeed would have been coming from the generation born around the Second World War or earlier. No, I mean, that's, that is a pretty extreme example anyway, although we've now, I mean, there is now an NMC recording uh, which didn't seem to cause the orchestra anything like the same problems. I think one of, for me, one of the main changes has been the, the, the teaching of conservatoires has passed to a younger generation who aren't frightened of new music and positively encourage their pupils to play it instead of doing nothing but Beethoven and Mozart. So that's been a, a, a complete sea change for me and, and a very welcome one. Well, Colin, maybe we could talk also about audiences because so far we've been discussing the relationship between the composer and the performers within the orchestra. But what does audience reception have to do with it? Or is that simply not an issue? Perhaps if you present the works and they're, and they're presented properly and given convincing performances, then they'll naturally find an audience. Yeah, I think there is, a, that there is a, an audience for new music, but it also can be spread much more widely. I mean, if a composer, if a conductor endorses new music, uh, he's going to be followed, as, for instance, I mean, Simon Rattle managed to change around the audience with the Basilia Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. And also, you know, anything he does with the LSO, they'll come to. Uh, Vladimir Yurovsky has done the same sort of things with the LPO, where he's put really tough stuff there. Um, and the audience welcomes it. Uh, it's because it's endorsed. And it's away from the sort of the old ivory tower thing where audiences felt that they were just being almost antagonized by composers. Well, I, I remember a story I was told by a friend of mine who was at the world premiere of Maxwell Davis's Second Taverner Fantasia, another impressive work of his, also very difficult from a few years earlier than World's Bliss. And um, according to my friend, uh, older friend, 
he sat down next to a married couple who said, oh, what's the first piece? Oh, a new piece. Oh, that'll be interesting. Married couple. <laughs> and then the piece started, it starts rather quietly, but before too long, it's getting pretty strident. And in the middle of one of the first uh, big orchestral tutties, which, which was raving away, um, the wife turned to the husband and said, it's horrible. But the point <laughs> was she wasn't expecting it to be horrible. <laughs> and I find the, 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 there was a change in audience attitude. Clearly, by about 1965, it was not generally accepted that new music would be confrontational by a British audience, but, or some of them anyway, but, but they found out in no uncertain terms the piece was you know, pretty fierce and couldn't really take that in. I think the change in music between 1950 and 1965 was, I won't say too fast, it was as fast as it clearly needed to be for the composers, but I think it was very, very sharp. And as regards the audiences, I think it did leave a lot of them way behind, though they were still trying to come to terms with late Bartok. Colin, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your your early experiences writing for orchestra and what that was like, what the situation for composers working in that medium was like at that time. Well, not easy. I mean, I was very lucky in some ways in, in winning a major competition with the Scottish National Orchestra back in the relatively early 70s, uh, which was a huge launchpad for me. Uh, and before that, I'd had, I'd only had, I think, one professional orchestral performance with the very scary, um, what's now the BBC Philharmonic, Philharmonic, but then the BBC Northern, which had about the toughest brass section you could ever want to meet. Um, when it came to the Scottish National Orchestra, um, they were very welcoming and um, the piece went well. It's not been, I, you know, I was incredibly lucky to have that particular starting point. I, you know, I was then in, uh, you know, nearly, I was just about 30, in fact, when at the time of the first performance. So quite a late starter. Um, and Although I didn't immediately get commissions, I did work on another orchestral piece, which luckily the BBC Symphony Orchestra took up. It's a piece called The Landscape. Um, and then I started getting BBC commissions, including my first cello concerto, which would have been in the early 80s. So I had a fairly smooth passage, and it just seemed to be um, relatively easier, uh, partly because actually the BBC was was much more open-minded in those days and had a, had a policy of, of, of commissioning, which has not disappeared, but has been very much dissipated now and, and diluted. Well, the other thing about the, the, the present day situation is that you're very fortunate in Britain to have figures such as Simon Rattle, who are, of course, enormously charismatic and convincing exponents of contemporary orchestral music. And I think that that makes a tremendous difference. You also, until relatively recently, had Oliver Nussen, who unfortunately has left us, uh, but who was uh, tremendously effective, I would say, in terms of um, getting uh, top quality recordings out of very recent pieces. And that's not something that exists in every country. No, well, I mean, Ollie Nussen was, was something very special, and both Julian and I probably had more first performances from Ollie than from any other performer. Um, it was wonderful to be able to work alongside him and also to see him in, in action. I produced quite a few recordings for him. and His ability to, to get things right or his insistence on getting things right was, was absolutely extraordinary. I mean, he didn't always endear himself to players, but... Um, 
but just because he was a perfectionist. But I mean, they knew they knew he knew what he was doing. Yes, he was rather remarkable, and certainly working with him. Uh, I mean, the the real thing for a composer working with Ollie Nussen was you didn't have to say anything much, because mm. it, whatever you'd thought of, he'd already heard and noticed and decided what to do about. You know, he was he was very very clever that way and very astute. As regards the situation generally, I think I think Rattle is a remarkable case, and of course Rattle's been doing work like that all his career. Of course, he did also do do a lot of work in Germany until recently with the Berlin Phil. Um, but we've also been very lucky to have around other conductors who work similarly, like uh, Esapeka Salonen and Vladimir Rovsky, who've been active in London a great deal. All sorts of conductors who are very... Uh, Edward Gardner is another case, who just do new music absolutely as they would do any other repertoire with the same care, the same style, the same flair and communicate with an orchestra very efficiently and quickly over it um and there's some marvelous young conductors doing the same thing so i think the situation here is fortunate i think it's important to remember that the background was favorable in the sense that what william glock managed to do with the bbc in the 60s and 70s was something that that created a climate whereby younger players were now being trained and it was, I mean, for example, the other figure who occurs to me is at the Royal College of Music, somebody who was training players who are now in all the major orchestras and ensembles and, and whom uh, Colin also knows is Edwin Roxburgh, who founded the 20th Century Ensemble at the RCM way back in 1967, I think, and was doing modern and contemporary music every term, big complicated concerts with them right the way though for 30 plus years. And marvellous players came out of that that went straight into our orchestras and ensembles. And that then the same thing started to happen at the Royal Academy under Paul Patterson and John Carew and uh, other places as well. The Royal Northern started doing a great deal of, of, of new music. And so I think the conservators have uh, encouraged, perhaps, by the, the, the Glock climate, uh, took this music on board and decided to, to deal with it as part of the curriculum generally. And that has has changed everything. I think that does make the climate here in some ways very favourable, yes. I mean, the, the trouble here is obviously the per- perpetual problem, even in normal times, which these are not, of finance. Uh, that's a, perhaps a slightly separate matter. From my perspective as an outsider living in France, it's, it does strike me that one of the characteristics of the contemporary composition scene in Britain is that it, it appears relatively diverse aesthetically, which I think is a, a marvellous thing. Uh, you don't see that to quite the same extent in France. Of course, it's very different here. But it seems that there's a very wide range of aesthetic positions on offer, if we can put it that way, in Britain. And in addition to that, there's um, what appears to be quite broad institutional support for contemporary composers generally, which is not to say, of course, that that British composers have it easy, because I'm well aware of the fact that, that it's not the case, and it's, it's particularly not the case now. But it's hard not to look across the channel with a certain degree of envy with some of the opportunities that uh, that exist over there currently. Well, I think this is also very much due to people like Colin creating them and realizing that if the situation between composers and orchestras was going to improve, that what was needed was more experience on both sides. 
Yeah, it's always been a sort of mission of, to stop not just composers being afraid of orchestras, but orchestras being afraid of composers. And I think, you know, there has been a big change that, in fact, the composers have become, if you put it crudely, much more competent. Um, perhaps as much as anything because of the huge availability of, of recorded music uh, so that they're able to learn things that um, certainly I had to struggle with. I mean, trying to buy recordings and scores when, when I was young was, was a really tough, tough ask. I remember trying to get hold of a score of Schoenberg's Pelias and Melisande um, for, for about three years and certainly never expecting to hear it, whereas now there are probably about 50 recordings. Yeah, it's it's amazing how quickly that's changed. Actually, <laughs> when I was a teenager and beginning to become interested in a lot of this music, it was incredibly difficult and expensive to obtain the scores and recordings. You'd have to actually order away from them from overseas and wait for them to come in and so on. And they were really expensive. So... Uh, in the past 20 years or so, there's been an enormous shift in that sense. Uh, Julian, how do you see that playing out with your students now that it's possible to obtain recordings of anything for free instantly? Well, um, or at least for very low cost, if any. Um, it's it's certainly improved some areas of knowledge. In terms of contemporary music, it, generally speaking, but it, but this is selective, I have to say, Generally speaking, their knowledge is is much more extensive, quicker, um, because people put YouTube files up with score following, for example. That's a major facility which makes also teaching composition much more straightforward in some ways, and especially at the moment when everything has to be online because of the COVID crisis. On the other hand, uh, it depends on which music is, is there and, and, and is put up. It is still the case that uh, knowledge of certain composers lags behind because either their publishers don't make the music readily available or the composers themselves don't bother for whatever reasons. And, for example, I can tell you one composer who has, to some extent, suffered from this is Stockhausen because Stockhausen's Verlag um, are understandably you know, quite intent on trying to follow the copyright regulations, which I totally respect and understand. But it does mean that the promotion of Stockhausen's scores after about 1970 uh, was, was held back even before YouTube and is still not smooth. Um, knowledge of what he was up to in the last 30 years is very patchy indeed. The sound files generally find their way onto YouTube for, for Licht, but the scores don't. And... Um, the influence of that music on now three, I'd say, three or four generations of younger composers has has been slight. Therefore, for example, how this affects me is that, for example, when I teach, as I did recently, a class on the music of Claude Vivier, I have to play them the Stockhausen that he was listening to in the early 70s to get them to understand to what degree Claude Vivier's mature style owes a vast amount um, and this is not a criticism of it, it's just a fact, to Stockhausen's music from the early 70s, particularly Momenta in its final version, um, Trans and Inori. I mean, really, hugely. And when I played an extract from Inori in that seminar, uh, just as an example of things, there was an expression of considerable surprise because very few people and of the young composers had heard Inori, and they didn't realize to what extent the Vivier style owes a great deal to that piece. So I think that the distribution of new music is a is a vexed point. 
I know that quite a lot of composers are still worried about the lack of copyright control on YouTube and all that. I feel that if I compare it to how things were in the 80s when you know people had to send cassette tapes around and things like that, if you would rather that people did know your music and did know what you've been up to than that they didn't, one you know one tries to cope with the problems that YouTube poses, but there are enormous benefits from it too. I can't really advise composers or publishers as to what to do about this, but I think they should consider what they're losing in real terms if they don't allow music to go up there. Because, for example, in my case, I've acquired a considerable number of performances through YouTube things being put up and performers hearing them and saying, we'd like to play that. That's happened a great deal. And if the music had been prevented by my publishers from being up on YouTube, that wouldn't have happened. It is a very complicated matter. This There isn't an easy answer to it. No, and we don't know what the results of all of this are going to be, of course, because we're, we're conducting a colossal experiment in terms of the way artistic works are disseminated and the ways in which artists can benefit from their own production. And we absolutely don't know how that's going to go. No, we don't. And also, I have to say now one thing, which is a very firmly held belief on my part, which is that I feel strongly that it was not right that either YouTube or especially Spotify, who I feel more strongly about than YouTube, um, were allowed to set up their sites, well, in terms of Spotify, paying what appear to be extremely low rates per track. And um, I don't feel that that was correct, and I I feel that matter should actually be reviewed. But I'm not an expert on finance and on copyright, but my feeling is when I look at my royalty sheets and see how little per track uh, of Spotify one gets, and I, I hear this from orchestras as well, um, it doesn't seem right to me. I think YouTube, my view, and this is only my personal view, is that YouTube is a slightly different thing in the sense that it's a, more a network of information, whereas Spotify is actually a, a recording library, really. So I, I have, uh, you know, I realize these are not simple matters, but I do think that that such matters do require some review in the long run because I think it isn't quite right, uh, the low rates that some of these companies seem to pay. YouTube is a form of pirate radio, essentially, in the, in the sense that you, you put things up and you see what you can get away with. But there's very little, there's an algorithm that, that looks for things and tries to check if you're in violation of copyright, but it's not a very effective algorithm. Whereas Spotify is an officially sanctioned site that does in fact pay royalties, even though they're very, very slight. I agree, but I do, I do think that the royalties are very slight, and I think uh, that that is, isn't the level they should be. Um, well, there is, a, there is a, currently a, a parliamentary inquiry into, into this. So, I mean, we may get good results from it. But I mean, the, 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 as you say, the, the amounts are derisory, and I think I saw that Spotify makes vast amounts of money um, none of which gets passed back to us. I mean, I regularly have something like 50 pages of, of Spotify downloads on my publishing statement, adding up to about 20 pounds. Um, and it's, 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 I mean, I don't necessarily expect to earn from it. And I think one of the things about young composers is they, they're always surprised that they, they actually earn anything. Um, and, you know, the thing is that because it's difficult for them to, to, to make any sort of living, they don't expect to make it through composing at all, and they're just grateful for performances. It's just something I try to tell them not to be just grateful. They also need to, you know, make money out of it. 
I, I agree because I think this is a profession and there is a need for this music. There are performers who want to play it. There are orchestras who actually do want to play it. And it can no longer be said that audiences just flee when they see a new piece or anything like that. I've seen the Royal Opera House sell out for new operas repeatedly and all, all concerts with, with big new pieces at the proms absolutely sell out and so on and so forth. So I do feel there is a need for this music. I think there is, a, a, to put it crudely, a market for it. And I do think that composers should not be satisfied with just being able to get their stuff heard at all. Although, of course, I understand why they are grateful for that. And, of course, they should be grateful for performers exerting time and trouble in playing it. Yes, fine. But I think, you know, we all we, we need in the longer run. I mean, this is I'm all talking about the longer run because the present situation with a pandemic going is very unusual. So I can't really comment on that as a, as a model. I'm not. I'm treating it not as a model because it won't be. Right. Well, Colin, I'd very much like to get your perspective on this because, of course, in addition to being a hugely distinguished composer, you've also spent a great deal of your time supporting other musicians. And you've notably done that through the creation of the record label NMC. And I want to hear about that actually a little bit, how you got involved in in doing that, because it's not something that you can sort of do on the side. It takes a, a tremendous amount of time. And you've done this in the service of other composers, which is very, very unusual. Well, it was something that seemed to me to be a, a, a crying need for. I mean, it came about mainly because I've, I've had this long association, well, associations from when it was formed with the Holtz Foundation, which was formed in 1984, uh, from Holtz royalties and with Imogen Holtz's uh, full approval not long before she died. Uh, and we had always intended it to fund new music um, and performance. And NMC actually arose from the fact that we were, I was realizing it, there was one specific occasion when we funded a concert by the Philharmonia and Oliver Nussen at the Albra Festival, and it wasn't broadcast. It reached an audience of, um, you know, 800 or so. And we had put up what was a large sum in those days, about £20,000, to make sure it happened. Uh, and it, the result of that, to me, was, you know, we can't go on doing this sort of thing. We need to make it more permanent. And so we gradually started uh, working out how to set up a record label, which didn't happen until, I think, it took a, took a while. And I think our first release was in 1989 with Jonathan Harvey's back tea. And we slowly grew it. I mean, we had initially, we had a huge hit list of, of music which needed to be recorded. Uh, not a difficult list to make as there were so few recordings of, of, of British contemporary music in those days. But we gradually worked our way through it to the state where now we have um, over 300 CDs, uh, a lot of digital downloads um, and you know it's become it's become a, a repository of, of the best of British music. It has and it's also remarkably aesthetically diverse. I want to come back to this point again because that's again not something that is the case in every country but the the range of work that has been presented through NMC is really quite astounding. Well it was a deliberate very much a deliberate decision that we wouldn't have a policy it had to be good music uh, and there are certain sort of music that we just weren't interested in but you know we we wanted to be diverse so that for instance our, our first our first recordings included I mean had Howard Skempton Michael Finnessy and James Dillon amongst them 
Uh, and we've always tried to be as diverse as we possibly could and not to follow any particular aesthetic, which is something you were saying is we, we don't really have an aesthetic in this country anyway. Um, so th- uh, mirroring that diversity was something we, we really felt was the best approach to do rather than going down a specific line. Julian, does that ring true for you that there isn't a particular British aesthetic with regards to contemporary composition? I think, um, yeah, I think probably that is just trying to think about this. I mean, the, there are composers who've been identified in this or that label, but it doesn't, I think, it, for example, there's no label being pinned on, on Harrison Burtwistle or, for that matter, on to Judith Weir or, for that matter, um, Helen Grime or, for that matter, George Benjamin, four cases, I can't think of any ism that you can pin on any of these people. And they're four major figures from four different generations. That would suggest that that we have managed to avoid that kind of easy packaging of new music. Now, that's not to say that there aren't composers, and I'm thinking here, for example, of the late Steve Markland, who didn't get involved in such um, identification, in Steve's case, by spending a lot of time um, with uh, the so-called Hague School of Composers in Holland, um, Louis Andreessen, Diedrich Wachenaar, um, Cornelius de Bont, and so on. And uh, certainly that had a huge effect on Steve Markland's mature style. There's no question. He, he never denied it. He, he was always very clear on that. Um, nevertheless, it would be hard to describe Steve Martin as, as any kind of minimalist. I mean, if you listen to his huge orchestral work, um, Babi Yar, um, it's not typical minimalism at all. It's very dissonant for one thing. Um, so I, I think that when there have been, and there have more recently been composers very strongly influenced over here by uh, Helmut Lachenmann's music, um, or the spectral music of Grise or whatever. But I wouldn't say that, and I mean, I was very influenced by Grise's music from way back, from, from the early 80s. But I never, with the possible exception of one piece of mine, which I recently disinterred when I wrote when I was 17, my first string quartet, I would say probably is a spectral piece. But uh, nothing I've done since then is, and I certainly wouldn't say that my music follows that or any other aesthetic. I think... There are pluses and minuses to this. The plus is that it allows for a lot of interior independence or mental independence on the part of the composers. The minus is that there's nothing the press likes better than a label. And if you don't have a label attached to you, it can simply take longer to get through to public awareness because they can't say, oh, yes, that that represents that kind of music. I mean, there was, for example, an attempt by Boozy and Hawks in the 70s and 80s to market the composers Kurt Schwerzig and H.K. Gruber as the third Viennese school. But it, the label didn't stick. And Beat be uh, be Fuhrer as well, I believe. Not at that time. Not, not, Beat was mm. younger. Not, not at that time. The third Viennese school was an invention of a particular person, by the way, David Drew, I wasn't aware David had any interest in Beat Fuhrer at that point, and it was meant to be a new stream of music that was going to go back to tonality and 
and also link up with Court Vial from the 30s, uh, 20s and 30s, and so on. Um, no, I don't think uh, David ever intended Beat Fura, who's an admirable composer, to be part of that. Beat may have been marketed that way since, but not, I think, by Boozy and Hawks and David Drew, unless Colin no, knows otherwise. No, you're, you're right about that. Well, let's bring this back to, to NMC. I wonder what things look like today for a record label, because on the one hand, the pandemic has certainly incited a massive resurgence of people interacting with music, particularly online. So certainly in my case, with respect to my YouTube channel, but also my own recordings, my CDs and so on, there's been a tremendous uptick in engagement with that sort of thing. So that would seem to be very good for a record label, but at the same time, it seems that sales of physical CDs is uh, is complicated by the fact that everybody now expects to get, to get everything for free. So how do things look presently, both in terms of physical CDs and in terms of streaming? Well, it's actually surprised us that the physical market has kept as strong as it has. Um, you know, the sales are never huge, but we have a following that really wants to have a, a physical product. But we went very early into digital, I think, but before most mainstream record labels, um, expecting, in fact, that by now we will probably be, be, be sort of download only, which has not happened at all. Um, it's, a, it's still about 50-50, I would say, in term, terms of sales. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there are advantages. We haven't suffered during, apart from nobody being able to work in the same office, um, we haven't suffered too much, except we've, we've had to cut down because we've lost several recording sessions. But we have a fairly long, uh, a large number of releases that are still still waiting to go. So at the moment, we haven't felt the impact. Um, and it may be, I, I can't believe that the physical format can stay that much longer, because as you say, people expect it to be free. Julian, how important was it for you to release CDs? And how, how has that figured in your development as a composer, generally? Well, it's a very interesting question, because in fact, I, I made my debut on CD very late. I wasn't recorded till I was 40, or 39 to be accurate. Whereas most of my, many, many of my contemporaries and, and people I'd taught and so on had already been recorded by that stage, even had orchestral pieces recorded. But for various uh, reasons, I didn't have, until suddenly two big releases came at the same time, one on, on Dean, uh, which was an album conducted by Nassen, and one on, in fact, NMC, uh, which was all the pieces I wrote when I was composed in residence with the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra in the early 2000s. And those came out at the same point. And so up till that point, I'd been reliant on radio broadcasts and word of mouth and uh, not YouTube, because YouTube didn't come about until just at the end of that period, in fact. So I found it made a very big difference indeed. Um, public knowledge of the music was vastly increased by those two albums. I'm not a very quick composer, so uh, those two albums contained, uh, in 2006, most of the music I'd written up to that point, except my oratorio, Heaven is Shav Earth. So uh, pretty much everything else was, was available, certainly of the larger pieces. Uh, one or two chamber pieces hadn't yet been recorded until more recently. But it made a very, very big difference. Um, and I've found it does make a big difference to this day. And I, I know composers from whom that's true very, very much. Until you release 
something on CD, it somehow gives it, it draws people attention to its existence. It uh, gives it a cachet and, a, and a, a prestige somehow, an official sort of something or other. It just distributes the music better. And in whatever format people are, are buying it or getting to know it, they immediately get to know it much more uh, than if it hadn't been recorded. I can tell you I that. Think there is um, also, though, though at the same time, there is something of a downside which always rather depresses me is the fact that the existence of a recording does mean that people think they perhaps don't need to perform the pieces in question. And I can think of a lot of NMC. Uh, discs which have got some remarkable music on them, but whose live performance has just not happened for years. I mean, a couple of examples. Dominic Muldani's Oboe Concerto is a superb work. It hasn't been performed since its first performance 30 years ago. John Warwick's Viola Concerto, another, another, I think, something of a masterpiece, which has also disappeared. And most of uh, the recordings we've made for Anthony Payne have also languished. I mean, he, he also suffers from being identified with Elgar III, above all, another NMC recording. Well, to what extent is this a function of the composer's personality and their charisma, let's say, and their ability to get performers interested in performing their work? Because it seems to me that that's often a distinct thing from the quality of the work itself. It's something that composers are generally not, not very good at, um, self-promotion. Um, understandably, I mean, they want to go on, they're, they're more interested in what they're writing rather than um, promoting themselves. And, you know, some of the one composers who have been very good at self-promotion um, are not amongst the stars of contemporary music. I think um, uh, I admire very much one thing about, uh, well, composers as different as Kaya Sariaho. Stockhausen, Messiaen, and Chernovin, for that matter, which would be that in all cases, they got to know performers who really wanted to work with them, and they cultivated those performers and made sure that they wrote music involving them and worked with them closely. Benjamin Britten did this. Uh, all sorts of people have done it. I think it is one way of working. It's not the only way of doing it, but certainly in the case of Kaya, for example, Kaya Sariaho, her close association with Ansi Carton and the cellist has resulted in a real, I mean, a real renewal of, renewal of cello repertoire from, from her pen. Many of her cello pieces are now absolute classics of modern cello repertoire. And that really came about through her working for, for many years with, with Ansi. So I think that such things are very important. Um, a younger composer like Phil Venables certainly seems to me to do this too. And, and of course, a composer-performer like Thomas Addis does it. And actually, if you look at a career of somebody like Gerald Barry, I think you can see that happening too. Particular conductors, particular performers that he likes working with and who like what, what Gerald does. So I think that can be a way through the problem. Or some composers found their own group, like uh, Steve Martland did. That also, and the spectral lot in France did that with their Ensemble Itinéraire. Uh, there can be different ways of doing this, yeah. But, I mean, somewhere, I think it can be... I so there's a British composer who's who died in the age of 96, I think, in about 1972, who wrote many, many symphonies after the age of 80. He's called Havagal Bryan, and uh, he's reputed to have written the largest symphony ever written, his first, which is called The Gothic, which has had a certain amount of recordings and performances. Anyway, the reason I mention him is because 
Brian just simply wrote the, as far as I understand, Brian wrote these pieces and just put them in a drawer, mostly. And I think doing that is damaging. I don't uh, say that the composer is the only person responsible for getting their music known, some, but I think just writing a piece of music and putting it in a drawer and saying, right, now I'll write another one, then put that in a drawer, it, it's, it is damaging for the composer psychologically. It's damaging for their music, rather obviously. Um, but if you write lots of you know, notes on paper, presumably you want somebody to hear them. And if you won't take any steps to get them heard, uh, you know, just contacting performers by email who might be interested, it's, it's very, very hard. Self-promotion is excruciatingly hard, and I'm not uh, good at it at all. But I also think that it's important not to just say, well, I've written the piece and that's that. It's very difficult, and I'm not criticizing anyone in particular in saying that. I do have sympathy for lots of composers because they find themselves in excruciatingly hard situations. We all do. It's a very difficult area to work in. One of the worst pieces of advice I ever received uh, came from a composer who said to me, don't worry about your old pieces. They're not going to get repeat performances. That's really not how this works. The idea is to keep writing new things. And over time, as you continue to get a stream of new commissions, eventually, if your work is of a certain level, then perhaps people will become interested in your older things. But don't expect that at the outset of your career. Just keep writing new things all the time. And that struck me as being, in some manner, fundamentally wrong. And so I always took it upon myself to make sure that my pieces were properly published and performed and recorded and performed multiple times in as much as was possible, partly because it seemed to me that in order to determine where you were going to go next, it helps to have a strong image of what it is that you've already done. And if you don't have proper performances of pieces also, uh, it can sometimes give you a somewhat distorted image of this because there are many composers who have a piece that's done once, not done very well, and they imagine that it's a failure for that reason. It may well be a failure, but it might also have good points that aren't revealed simply because there isn't a top-notch performance of the piece. Yeah, there are also practical questions here because, for example, uh, speaking of Claude Vivier, um, he never heard his one of his most famous pieces, Lonely Child. He never heard it live. He was handed a tape by Canadian radio, and he listened to that. But what that didn't apparently tell him was that the piece doesn't balance very easily. I mean, there are real problems balancing the solo soprano with the rest of the orchestra, which, of course, with a radio mic, you can solve in one fell swoop. And uh, I've been involved in live performances of that piece, and you just have to rebalance. And you usually you have to amplify the soprano, frankly. Um, the score is not of itself entirely practical because he had never rehearsed the piece. Right. That's another instance in which it can certainly hold people back not to have proper performances and recordings of things, or only having a recording in that, in that particular instance. Hi, everyone. This is a short message from your host. I'm proud to share what I hope you will agree are high-quality conversations with performers and composers doing compelling work for free. I'd like to keep it that way for a long time to come. But this show does take time and resources to produce, and you can help by becoming a patron of the Samuel Andreev podcast and my YouTube channel. It's incredibly easy and simple. For as little as $5 a month, you can help keep the show going in exchange for exclusive downloads, books, CDs, even personalized conversations and lessons. Please visit www.patreon.com slash Samuel for more information, or click the link in the podcast description. 
Or if you prefer to make a one-time donation, you can do that at www.samuelandreev.com slash donate. So Colin, one of the things that I wanted to bring up with you is John Adams has described you as being somebody who was born to write for orchestra. In, in other words, it's an innate sense that you have, and you you sort of think in terms of the medium. I wonder if we could talk about this for a minute, because that's not a particularly common thing. And it seems to me, having perused not all of your work, certainly, but a great deal of it, that you you indeed do think in terms of the orchestra, and you have an, an absolutely extraordinary natural touch for writing for it. And I wonder, first of all, if you would agree with John Adams's assessment and how it is that you evolved your orchestral style. Well, it, it's very generous of John, but I don't think I would entirely agree with it, knowing, knowing my own progress towards um, orchestral adequacy in the first instance. I mean, I had an extraordinarily lucky upbringing in the fact that, that from almost when I was still at school, I was associated with Derek Cook's reconstruction of Marler 10, and I was a compulsive Mahler listener in any case, but you know, working on that symphony and knowing every note from the inside uh, was as good as being taught by anybody. And I would say I learned most of my orchestral abilities through through study of Mahler. Um, and it always felt, I suppose, relatively natural for me, but I certainly, it, it took a long while to learn. Um, and I Certainly, there are some orchestral pieces which, which never saw the light of day uh, and which never will, um, where I was very much learning on the job. Um, it's For me, it's, it does feel a natural way to write. Um, I don't know how I can enlarge on that. I mean, it, it's just the fact that I do think, because, because I'm, not, I'm not a performer, um, I'm a less than adequate pianist, and I've picked up, quite a few instruments and just got through the rudiments of them. But somehow it doesn't seem to, it doesn't worry me in the sense that I, I, I know I know how instruments work and it feels natural to express myself in that way. Um, yeah, and it's it certainly is, is the most important, I think, part of my output. Well, it seems to me that it's, it's in many respects a fundamentally different medium from anything else that exists in music. And it's not an easy thing to come to grips with, particularly if you if you don't have extensive experience in working with orchestras. So, but but for you, that came through your experience working on Mahler's Tenth Symphony. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit about how you got involved in that and what that was like. I got involved with it by hearing it for the, the hearing the very first broadcast in in 1960, uh, when I was still only 14. Um, it it knocked me out at the time. And just the whole story of it fascinated me so much that I got hold of uh, a copy of the facsimile and started transcribing it myself. Um, and also, for some extraordinary reason, I was able to borrow Derek Cook's um, reconstruction from the BBC Music Library. And so uh, what happened was when eventually Alma Mahler gave permission for Derek to go ahead with, with a complete performance, I had the cheek to write to Derek to say, I think I've found a few mistakes. Uh, and uh, Derek, being the extraordinary person he was, didn't sort of say, you know, go away. He, he said, please come and meet me and we'll talk about it. Uh, and um, from then on, we just collaborated. Uh, my brother joined in too uh, a little later. 
And we collaborated on endlessly refining the orchestration until um, that was over a period of, goodness knows, it was published in 1975, I think. So it was a sort of um, 10-year progress of, of gradually refining the piece, which again was also a, you know, a big learning curve for me doing that. And I've been, you know, I, I'm still, the 10th is still an obsession with me. And um, you know, every time I look at the manuscript, I find something else that we missed first time. It's such a difficult manuscript to decipher in some respects. As I said, it was a, a real learning curve. And I got more from that than from almost anything else, except for the fact that towards the end of that, I started working with Britain. So having Mahler and Britain as um, teachers wasn't a bad thing. Hmm. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Uh, there, there's something absolutely remarkable about Mahler's orchestral style, where despite the fact that he often has recourse to these massive forces, there's, it's often extremely transparent, like a gigantic form of chamber music. Yes, is, indeed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I wonder if we could talk about that for a second, because with respect to 20th century orchestral styles and perhaps beyond, it seems that you could say that there is a, a spectrum with, on the one hand, a Straussian approach that would be highly synthetic in nature with a high degree of blend. And that might be something that you see offshoots of with the, the spectral style. And then on the other end of the spectrum, something like Stravinsky, in which the sound is highly articulated and you have a constantly changing kaleidoscopic range of soloistic configurations. I wonder if that spectrum resonates with either of you two, if you might see things in those terms and where you might see yourselves with respect to that opposition. Well, if, if I can jump in first, yeah, I mean, the, the, the Strauss thing certainly appeals. I mean, to actually have the same sort of um, love of both Strauss and Stravinsky is pretty rare, but for me, they are the sort of pillars. Strauss, the, orchestra, the orchestral style is wonderful and effortless, but you do know that Strauss sort of said, you know, he, he looked at the score and he just had another layer of counterpoint and you could just go on and on building up. And certainly in the middle period, there is that real sense of, um, of sort of marking time just because he knows how to do it and he's not stretching himself. With Stravinsky, there always seems to be, there's, there's always something new that he's trying to do if you put Mahler in the middle of that, I, I mean, it's particularly in terms of orchestration. I mean, the, the works that I learned by far the most from would be the uh, Song of the Earth and the Ninth Symphony, where that chamber music style that you talk about comes in much more than any of the earlier pieces, except for perhaps some of the Seventh Symphony. And some of the things, the thought that Mahler never even heard those two works, but they are so perfect, is something quite remarkable. There are a few places, I think, in the Song of the Earth where he didn't allow a perfect balance and would have reorchestrated, as he tended to do in any case. But I can't think of any place in the Ninth Symphony where he puts a foot wrong. And in fact, Colin, you have made, have you not, a version of the first movement of Dust Lead in which those balance problems are somewhat updated, unless I'm mistaken. Well, I have done, and that was not something I, I expected to be doing, but it was at the request of Mark Elder, who said he was fed up with having to you know, either mark the score all over the place with reduced dynamics or tell people to play one level below. And I thought, no, this isn't something I can do to you know, reorchestrate Mahler. But then I came across the statement that Mahler said, I think, Klemperer quotes it in the rehearsals of the Eighth Symphony. He said to the listening or, uh, uh, composers, conductors, 
in the audience during rehearsals, I got this wrong. If you ever think that anything I did was not right, it is not only your duty, it is your right to correct it. So I took that as a sort of carte blanche to be able to do it. And in fact, you, I mean, what, what happens is that by quite a lot of reduction of the texture and certainly much more attention to the dynamics, it actually does allow that poor tenor to come through. And you don't know that that is because we're so used to recordings where it can be artificially boosted. But in live performance, it's a terribly tough thing for the tenor to ride over. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? Julian, in the 110 years since Mahler died, do you think that the respective advances in orchestral style that have come with composers such as Zanakis and Ligeti and Messiaen and, and many others, and the Spectralists, of course, Lachenmann, is our approach to the orchestra somehow fundamentally different today, or are these really just extensions of basic orchestrational principles that haven't fundamentally changed since the early part of the 20th century? Um, I think both statements might be true. I think that there are some quite fundamental turning points in terms of somebody trying something that an orchestra hadn't done before and, and doing it incredibly well. And obviously, the, the Rite of Spring is such an instance. And I would cite uh, the three songs of, especially the final one, of Ruth Crawford Seeger for soprano, chamber ensemble, and chamber orchestra, as as an example of that, the 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 writing in that last song for orchestra, which includes very high and very low sustained sounds in clusters, which nobody had done before at all, and if you were to hear it now, you'd think this must be by somebody in 1968 or something or 65. Um, that is an ear opener. And although at the time I don't know how well known it is, uh, it was, um, now it's certainly become something of a classic of its era. There are certain other things, for example, Charles Ives, some of the big pileups in, I would say, the last movement particularly of his Fourth Symphony, which is one of the better of his denser pieces, um, showed certain things that were possible that one wasn't previously aware of. And obviously, composers in the last 40, 50 years Messiaen's Tarangalila um, is, a, is a case in point. Obviously, Ligeti's Atmosphere, I would cite Di Cristal by Kaya Sariaho as such an instance, um, Gondwana by Tristan Murai, Collins' Fourth Sonata, um, all kinds of pieces that have changed one's view of what an orchestra can be and do. But I think Collins' right in discerning that there are sort of two basic directions, there are more, of course, but two basic directions which are uh, the orchestra's large differentiated chamber group, which Mahler 9 indeed did show, uh, the, the first movement particularly showed the way. And that goes oddly, although I wouldn't say it's the chain of influence exactly, that goes oddly into something like Agon by Stravinsky, which does exactly that, but in a, a more, even more radical way. And of course, that then influenced later Tippett, like King Priam. And later I heard in 1990 in Sombate George Ligeti, claimed that Agon had been an influence on some of his later orchestral pieces like the Piano Concerto and the Violin Concerto, which does help explain why they're so different from his dense early stuff, if you think about it. And the other direction is, is, is the direction of density. And the obvious prefigurations there are in pieces like the Debussy, certain passages in La Mer and Jeu of Debussy, the Crawford Seeger piece I already mentioned, then obviously Ligeti and Xenarchus, 
and uh, then more recently certain pieces of Lachenmann which have extended the noise end of things using non-standard ways of using instruments very, very skillful in a, his book Tanzit mit Deutschland Lied for String Quartet and Orchestra. But that is also in the chapter of fusing orchestral and chamber music also by its very formation. So I think from my point of view, the gambit has been to take both of these different areas into account and to have a very flexible orchestral style which can deal in mass if it needs to but can also deal with individual and chamber music in an orchestral context which I still find a very exciting thing to do and another piece that puts those two together and was meant to by the way and he says in the program that it does was Stockhausen's Gruppen which you know has these masses of sounds but also has the sudden solos for percussion or piano or E-flag clarinet or whatever. I think one of the difficulties for orchestra players, certainly of an older generation, in terms of the mass approach, was them feeling that it didn't count individually, that they were playing as just as part of a huge swarm, that their individual efforts didn't matter as much. And I think I remember actually some players in the BBC Symphony Orchestra saying to me many, many years ago about Gérard Grise's Transitoire, they said it sounds beautiful, but it's very difficult to play individually because the, the parts are actually quite awkward. And also, we don't feel that we can play out at all. We have to be part of a larger thing because they began to realize they were part of a large sort of synthetic sound, in fact, a spectrum that he was synthesizing on the orchestra. That's very exciting for the composer. But you have to think a little bit about the players and what that does to them. It can depersonalize them if you're not careful. And I think um, Stockhausen's Punkter, for example, is a very good example of mixing the mass approach with individual contributions so that players are reminded of the value of their individual work. Can I just wanted to just fill in one gap? Because I, when you were talking about Ives Four, I think we forget actually how early that is and actually how little it was taken up in the sense of influence until much later. But the composer who did yes. influence people and who is, is an incredible individual is, of course, Varese. Um, yes. And that's, uh, you know, that, that is an extraordinary world to have developed uh, almost out of nowhere. Um, and, of course, we've lost his big orchestral piece that preceded it, Bourgoyne. But, um, you know, it, it, it seems to come from nowhere and extraordinarily inventive. Well, okay. So wait, I've got I've got two remarkable composers on the line here. So I have to ask this question: How successful do you think the orchestration is of a work like Arcan? Because there, there's a lot in that score that's really prospective in nature, and it's it's unclear to me how accurately he could have anticipated some of these orchestral effects. I think it, there is a it, it is a bit hit and miss. I mean, it, it comes off, but it needs a lot of care uh, to make sure it works. Um, but it, it's, an, it's, it's an extraordinary level of invention, and you can see from the, 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 the works that preceded that he actually he could hear, whether he could hear that amount of detail, I, I really don't know. I don't know how good his ears were. I mean, I think um, Amérique in both of its versions, because the first version is for, yeah. for a much bigger orchestra, shows, oddly, a higher success rate in terms of of uh, of of what actually comes off the page without any trouble. Um, but having said that, I think Arcana was a more challenging piece to write because his style had really developed in, into full maturity after Amérique. Amérique is the first go, but then you have these marvelous pieces like uh, Antigral and Hyperprism and and Octandre and so on. And to try and apply that to an orchestra was clearly quite a challenge for him. And um, 
I think it's one of the reasons he didn't write for orchestra much again. Yeah, I would agree with that. Actually, it's amazing how extraordinarily well the first version of Amérique actually works, which is quite early. It's 1922, I think. And it's very oddly orchestrated in many respects, but it actually it actually does work. And you can you can hear a great deal of the detail, and it's quite effective, even though he, of course, extensively reworked the piece five years later. Yeah, no, there's no question it, it comes off. I mean, every performance I've heard of the original version has, has knocked me for six. Having said which, I think it's now generally known that Amérique in its first version particularly, but actually both versions, is if not exactly full of stuff by others, but it 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 shows the very direct influence of other music in a way that he never allowed himself mm-hmm. to do again. I mean, there are there are allusions or quasi quotes from Schoenberg's Op sixteen. Or, or, this was one of Ollie Nelson's favorite hobbies was trying to find other ones. He managed to discover an incredibly obscure piece by Casella, which is alluded to in Amerique, and which he. He twigged because Varese gave the American premiere of that piece a few years before while he was writing the work, <laughs> because Varese also conducted. Um, so there, are, there are, it, I think part of the way, way that Amérique succeeded was because he was doing what you should do. He was looking at other composers all the time and learning from them and where he could, cribbing. And, you know, that is a normal part of the composing apprenticeship, absolutely. Mm. I mean... Um, you know, it's only recently been revealed to the extent to which Olivier Messiaen uh, borrowed whole chord progressions and things at pitch level from other composers, including contemporaries of his, like Jolivet and Berg and so on. And um, But whenever you hear those passages in Messiaen, they always sound like Messiaen. They don't sound like Jolivet uh-huh. or Berg. So, you know, he paid them back right by using them his way. Colin, you recently wrote a, a very interesting and insightful blog post about Gorelida. I wonder if we could talk about that for a second, because that's certainly a piece in which you seem to have both of those dimensions operative simultaneously, where it's it's very transparent at times, but then you also have some of the most colossal tutis that have ever been written for the orchestra. So you've said that that piece particularly impressed you when you first heard it. Yes, I heard it very early on, um, and just the whole scope of it. I didn't know a great deal about Schoenberg at that time, but what you find in it, I think, is that sort of wonderful sense of, of um, I can't call it anything other than love. It's, it's, a, it's a little warmth about it, which seems to gradually dissipate in, in Schoenberg's music, uh, and I still feel very close to it. Um, what do you say about transparency, of course, is more to do with the fact that quite a large proportion of the of the third part was actually orchestrated 10 years later. But the textures, were even then, when, when he composed them in 1901, were still very strange and un- unexpected. He didn't recompose. But it suddenly sounds like an- another Schoenberg, whereas, I mean, obviously the first part just is, is this wonderful post-Wagnerian, but very deep um, dialogue. Well, what do you think happened with respect to the evolution of his style? Because there's something, uh, for, from, my, from my point of view, that's also somewhat uh, hard to get a handle on with respect to Webern as well, where you have these spectacular early orchestral works that are absolutely unique in every respect, phenomenally inventive with respect to color and the, the handling of the orchestra. And this seems to have completely disappeared in the later works, which become unbelievably austere and arid in many respects from an instrumental point of view. And you see something along those lines happening with Schoenberg as well. And I can't believe that in both cases, it's simply the, the dodecaphonic technique that resulted in that change. 
Well, no, because I mean, they, I mean, the, I can't remember what the first um, actual dodecaphonic piece of Webern's is, but I mean, he developed that style of using every note of the chromatic scale quite early on. I don't know. I, I, I mean, Webern, I, I don't understand the development of that. With Schoenberg, I feel that there's there is a pressure that came on him. Um, one of the things was the first performance of Guru Leader. And having been a composer who'd been very much frowned upon, suddenly found himself as a sort of great hero, this really turned him off. And I think he went in an almost deliberately opposite direction. But to me, I mean, actually, I had a long argument with, in many years ago, with Hans Keller about this who said I should leave Schoenberg alone because I clearly didn't understand him. But it seemed to me that the psychological problems he had um, with his wife leaving him at the time of the second quartet and the suicide of Richard Gestel had a profound effect. And somehow the music becomes much more cerebral, much tougher. And also the fact that I think the, the struggle he must have had with a work like Ivartum to allow that to come out. It's, a, it's an incredible demand to write music that is so un, unpinned. He had to find a way, I think, to codify the language. And I think codifying the language is, is what, for me, made, made it dry up so that almost everything, well, most of the works after Ivartum, I sort of gradually move away from. I, I used to sort of love it all equally, and now I... I sort of stop at a roundabout him. Julian, you mentioned earlier that with respect to, to Stockhausen, his influence on younger composers has been very slight, partly because of the issues of, of copyright surrounding his scores, but not only. And if we were to broaden that somewhat to include earlier figures such as Schoenberg, but also Boulez, certainly, it seems that for decades, those figures were impossible to step around in the sense that they were absolutely omnipresent. That doesn't seem to be the case with the younger generation. Uh, that entire line of inquiry seems to have almost completely vanished from contemporary composition. Does that seem to be the case to you in your teaching? I'd say there's a, there's a plurality of approaches, um, and I don't think it's at all common for a composer to come in and say that that's what they think they're doing, continuing that particular line only, or anything like that. But... I think it's possible that the ways in which some of those composers put themselves across didn't always help. I mean, whether Schoenberg really did or didn't say what Josef Rufer says he said, that when he discovered 12-note technique, that he discovered a means of um, saving, was it ensuring the supremacy of German music for the next 100 years or something like that? That's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um if he didn't say it, there was certainly a feeling that um, rather as, as happened when Milton Babbitt kept protesting that he didn't write an article called Who Cares If You Listen, because indeed it was not the title of the article. It was called The Composer as Specialist. But I'm afraid I would in both cases say, even if that's not what you said, it's the spirit of what you said. And in, also in Babbitt's case, the article is about retreating from the public arena and saying, all right, well, if you don't want to listen to us, we don't want you to hear it. It's more complicated than that, but that is what is said, and the idea is the recourse to the university in in consequence. 
in Schoenberg's case, I think, well, we should remember that he was already 50 in, let me get this right, isn't that 1914? Am I right? Or is that, is he 40? No, 24, 24. 24. Yeah. Yeah. I think after the age of about 40, he became concerned, uh, well, um, you know, is that a popular song? How long is this going on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think he'd the the scenario surely was by the age of forty that things started sorting themselves out, but things became even more difficult after forty. And I think by fifty he was becoming very conscious of trying to stake his claims in the German tradition and saying, Here is where I belong, this is what I've done, this is what it is. And it's interesting that towards the end of his life he starts publishing volumes of writings like Style and Idea, which are also, it seems to me, to do with that. I think he did become very concerned, Collins Wright, obviously, to codify. Um, and also he found writing the free atonal music very hard. I mean, he, he Schoenberg always found composing hard, actually. He composed in very, very rapid bursts and then would stop for ages. And I think the idea of the 12-note thing was to try and get him composing more fluently, but actually that never happened. I certainly think that nowadays it would be a very rash composer of any age uh, and style and and origin, who would say, "I have sorted out the problems of music. This is now the, where music will go," um, and I I would really reject any such claims. I don't think the side of Boulez that tried to claim that was wise uh, or, or right at all. I don't think the side of Schockhausen that tried to claim it was right either. They were both wonderful composers, but I'd rather they kept their mouths shut about you know, how awful everything else was as they saw it or how wrong everyone else was or whatever. In general, what I think is in private composers need to to say, oh, well, I'm doing this or I think other people are wrong because they're not doing it. How could so-and-so write that? You know, private gossip between composers is is probably like that from time to time. But I think in public, they should keep their trap shut about their colleagues in that sense. I don't think any composer can make a claim now on holding the key to new music or the key to the future of music or anything like that. And I think it's very, very right that they shouldn't try to do so. George Ligeti never made any such claim, and he's a very wonderful composer. Um, and, And for that matter, neither did Stravinsky ever, if you think about it. He didn't say that from the writer's spring on, now everyone has to write like this. Um, he just gone on and wrote. I think it's much more important to create the best music you can and not to try and slot yourself into any lineage at all. Listen to what music is valuable. Listen to what music... Listen widely, because you need to know what's around and what music has done, and culture can help you, and and the history of culture can help too and can be very stimulating. But uh, I don't think composers should put themselves on a pedestal and say, I stand for this. And I think those days, if they ever did exist, were over. And I think they were bad days if they did exist. <laughs> That's about the furthest I'd go on it. Not sure. Does that answer your question? I think it did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it answers my question. Um, no, it just it, it strikes me that there's been a, a bit of a sea change in that regard, actually, because if I can give the perspective from somebody who studied in France, the influence of Boulez was colossal, and you saw it absolutely everywhere, until suddenly you didn't. And it's now extremely rare to find any composer that would claim to be influenced by Boulez. I think Boulez is a very particular case in many, many, many ways. It's a very The real history of Boulez is, let us say, political role in French society and in French music 
is not properly yet assessed in my in my view. But yes, I remember in the 80s and 90s, there were still many, even young composers, who were writing very Boulezian music in France, yes, and elsewhere sometimes too. And that particular set of cliches has dropped off. Those composers have generally moved on, and um, Boulez's music is left to speak for itself. Probably a good, good thing too. Colin, what is your view of Boulez the composer? Hmm, that's a big question. I've always found early Boulez difficult to take. Um, I have these uh, the two big blind spots uh, in 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 my musical appreciation. One is Pierre Lunaire and the other is Mathieu Sommet. Um, and I find both of them um, not easy to take and not particularly Mathieu Sommet. I, I just don't really understand its rationale. Uh, and for me, it's the, only the later Boulez that I really warm to and only limited numbers. Limit. I mean, the Notation for me is the best piece. Um, the um, oh god, what's the big ensemble the contemporary piece? My mind's gone. Well, there's the big well, one with electronics. Oh, uh, Repon, Repon, yes. Uh, that I also think is, is an extraordinary piece. I was at the first UK performance of that and I was knocked out by it and remain knocked out by it. Earlier works, I just find too, too for me, they're too arid. And it's similar with, with, with Stockhausen. I mean, I admire a lot of the early music, but when I heard Inori for the first time, I was absolutely shocked and staggered by it. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that earlier, Judy, because it's a piece I always try to play to students I'm working with because they just don't know it at all. Yeah, I often got a very positive reaction from it too. Yep, me, me too. And the, I think one of the problems, just going back to Stockhausen for a minute, was the you know, the fact that he wanted control over performance. You know, he was so insistent on how things had to be done and the minimum number of rehearsals. Not unlike Schoenberg. I mean, there's a, I think, isn't there a letter of Schoenberg to Hindemith who was proposing to put on Pierre Lunaire and said, you can't possibly do it without 50 rehearsals. Oh, I think that's Varese, yes. It oh, it's Varese, yes, you're right. Yes, yeah. Yeah, um, I, I think, you know, what Schoenberg meant was when I did it, you couldn't do it with anything less <laughs> yeah. than that. Well, well, in 1912, I don't doubt that that was, that was so. I think in both cases that they because they were responsible for putting on the first performances of almost everything they they didn't catch up with the fact that for example it wouldn't take the ensemble modern or the london symphonietta or the eic or whoever anything like that amount of rehearsal um i remember the late ollie nusson who worked a lot with stockhausen in late years saying about one of these rehearsal schedules that was in the preface to one of the scores i think it was the third region of hymnon with orchestra which is I, I adore by the way lovely um, but the rehearsal schedule he suggests for it is is absolutely manic and and would just b- break the budget of any any station or any orchestra. And Ollie said it's a rehearsal schedule for dummies. <laughs> it's on the <laughs> assumption that absolutely everyone involved is a is a is a complete idiot and and we're not. <laughs> and um, uh, but on the other hand, I know that that with Stockhausen. Later, if you said, look, actually, it doesn't need that, it needs this, and we'll do it on this, and it will work, he could respect that. He could be led to respect that if he respected you, um, mm-hmm. because I know that Nusson did do, did do that. 
Um, I think that composers need to know when they they don't know. Um, there are some very controlling composers, and there always have been. Um, and I think in many cases they need to be told when to back off. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, in some later experiences, Ligeti was like that. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Yeah. I remember um, Asa Pekka-Salonen saying to me that the best compliment he ever got from Ligeti was not bad for a Finn. <laughs> oh, that's oh appalling. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I think there were many... I mean, I was in a composition class of his on a summer course only for th three weeks or something in Hungary, in Sombate, as I say, in 1990. And the impression I got was of a very frust... I mean, a, a marvellous mind, but a very frustrated person, I think... Uh, seeing a room full of smug <laughs> uh, composers uh, who had all kinds of possibilities. You know, we were about to be workshopped by the Ensemble Moderne, and I mean, you know, Ligeti's early life was incredibly tough, mm. and he couldn't get anything played at all, and he had to really fight and struggle for many years. And even I understand when he was in the West, uh, for, I, I only really fully appreciated from Richard Steinitz's biography in just what dire straits Ligeti was until the mid-70s. Yes. I mean, I, I, I never understood that before. Um, so I think there was some aggression resulting from pent-up frustration at seeing, you know, lots of pe people younger than him who could just do anything they wanted, and he hadn't been able to. He never said that, but my guess is there must have been something of that because he could be the kindest and sweetest person on earth, but in the next sentence he could be the harshest. Really violently so. I don't mean physically violent, but verbally violent. But that connects to that exchange of letters between Varese and, and Schoenberg, actually, because what I recall happened is that Varese was planning to mount a performance of Pierrot Lunaire in New York and wrote to Schoenberg about this, and he received an inc incredibly angry reply back, saying something along the lines that, you people have no idea what's involved in putting on a piece like this. When we did the premiere, everyone was freezing and shivering. There was no heating. We had to do 50 rehearsals, et cetera, et cetera. And you think- Now you are. Right. And now you now you imagine you can just organize a couple of rehearsals and everything will be fine. But of course, you know what happened was they did do it. It was a huge success and it was such a huge success, they had to repeat it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Could you tell us, Colin, about Benjamin Britten? Because you worked with him in the 1970s. How did that come about? What was he like as a person? Oh, big questions. How did it come about? I'm, I mean, I worked as an editor at Faber Music, so I'd done a little bit of editorial work <clears throat> for him. Um, and the actual circumstances in which I started working directly with him was was um, when he was composing Death in Venice and he'd asked the pianist Graham Johnson to make the vocal score because he would be Piers's repetiteur. And Graham just wasn't up to making a vocal score. He was too slow for Britain and, and you know, didn't really know how to put it together. And I got an emergency call saying, could I, could I rescue the vocal score? Uh, this was in 72, and I worked with Britain um, from then on uh, until his death because, of course, after his heart operation, he was very limited in what he could do. And um, so uh, with the late works, I actually sat at the piano with him and played through uh, sketches, which was a pretty daunting experience, especially with my bad pianism. That must have been, I mean... Well, I, I can't, can't say it must have been, but were you intimidated at all? This is, after um, all, a, a hugely consequential figure. 
And in some ways, I wasn't. Uh, I had the big advantage of not at that stage being a. You know, I wasn't a Britain devotee, which always put him off. I mean, he, he really couldn't stand people who came up to him and told him how wonderful he was. Um, and because I didn't take that line um, and asked perhaps what he thought were more interesting questions, we got on pretty well. And I, I, in perspective, yes, I should have been more intimidated than I was, but um, for some reason I wasn't. Perhaps you were just too busy doing, because he was so demanding, as I understood, in what he needed people to do. Perhaps you were just kept too busy. <laughs> I was, well, certainly during Death in Venice, I mean, yes, I could barely keep up with him. But in, in later years, I mean, it was I, just, I felt huge sympathy for the fact that he couldn't write what he wanted to write. Uh, and so you know, did what I could to help. Julian, how important was Britain to you? It's varied hugely. Um let me tell you a funny story, which is that um, I didn't go to a very musical school uh, when I was like seven or eight or something. Um, but I mean, there was music in it, but that's rather like that joke in Faulty Towers where Basil Faulty's asked by one of the hotel guests, uh, will we have an airy room? And he says rather angrily, well, there's air in it. <laughs> <laughs> in that sense, there was music in the school. <laughs> <laughs> and um, But uh, nevertheless, one day our music teacher, and there was basically only one, who's a nice chap, he's a very good organist actually. Anyway, he sat us all down and I think he used to generally play us bits of music on record or, or at the piano or something, sort of music appreciation, I suppose, something like that. He, he sat us all down and said, told us a long involved story about some very gifted boy called Ben and how he'd grown up to be very, very musical, very proficient as a pianist and an excellent composer and sort of thing. And I know it sounds silly, but I mean, we were only eight or something. We, we didn't know who he meant. So he went on telling this story about this, and, you know, and he, then he founded a festival, blah, 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 and then said uh, the story, he said rather dramatically, the story I've just told you is a true story, and the composer was, is, was a British composer, Benjamin Britten. He died yesterday, mm. or maybe it had been announced that morning. And what's interesting about this very unmusical school is that we all then turned to each other and said, hey, did you hear that? Britain's dead. Now, we weren't cultivated, we weren't, and we didn't have very good music in the school and all that stuff, and we were spending most of our time throwing ink stands at each other and you know beating each other up, probably. Certainly that was my experience of being beaten up. However, the point is that, nevertheless, everyone in that room seemed to know who Benjamin Britten was and was shocked to hear that he'd just died. And I can't think of any equivalent in the present-day world of a composer that, that could have that degree of automatic, everyday familiarity in any society at all. Maybe I'm wrong, but I can't think of it. That that any group of eight-year-old schoolchildren in a room would just know. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I immediately knew that, and I knew he'd written The War Requiem and Midsummer Night's Dream and so on and so forth. Now... Um, all I really had heard was was my dad had a record of the young person's guide, and I I liked that, and I must say I still do. Um, I did never liked the War Requiem. I liked the the subject, and I love the poems, but I never, I'm afraid, enjoyed the music. I enjoyed uh, not that they're the same kind of thing at all, but uh, Tippett's Child of Our Time much more. Um, I liked odd pieces like the diversions for piano left hand and orchestra, which he wrote for Wittgenstein and Wittgenstein barely played, and which is a wonderful and spontaneous work. 
Um, I enjoy Britten, not always the operas, when he's uh, spontaneously inventing music off the cuff and not really... It's like what he said about the serenade for tenor horn strings, another marvellous piece. He said in a letter, it's not important stuff, but quite pleasant, I think. Well, actually, it's very important stuff, and, and, and it's much more than that. And when he, it's as if when he wasn't trying to be important, he was actually very remarkable. When he's trying to be important, I don't feel so much sympathy for the music. I think, though, that how he pulled himself together after this terrible series of health problems is extraordinary, and I think there are some very fine late pieces like the Third String Quartet, which Colin helped with, and also the Suite for Orchestra of um, A Time There Was, which was a sort of folk tune arrangement, but they're very original and very strange. And you look at the page, there's nothing there, and yet it sounds very well. I mean, the other thing, if anyone, I mean, I wrote an opera some years ago, anyone writing an opera will go to Britain simply because he knows how to write operas that work. You may not like the style, you may not like the subject matter, you may this and that and the other, but you're stupid if you don't look at his scores because they work. You know, that every word is audible. He knows how to introduce dr dramatic changes. Um, he knows about stagecraft and so on. So, of course, you look at them because they're a very professional job. I think that probably is his main role in my life and has been all along is that he was supremely professional and knew what he was doing but of course you know i can learn from other composers than that bag being a big point it's a very different composer a boulez um or kaisariaho or, or all kinds of composers that do things that are very different from what britain did it's a very limited style but my goodness it's professionally done it really is and uh, it did establish i think some levels of professionalism in this country that were desperately needed that rings true for me. The first exposure I had to Britain's music was Billy Budd, which was done at the Canadian Opera Company when I was working there as an usher. So I heard it, I don't know, seven or eight times in a, maybe a two-week span. And you couldn't help but be struck by the fact that in terms of how it worked as a piece of theater and musically, it seemed perfect. You could hear absolutely everything. And, and also, uh, and the and the and the dramatic line, of course, uh, functioned perfectly as well. And you, you know, there's there's not a single dull moment in the entire thing. Well, it's you, amazing. You try writing an opera for what's that two and a half hours without a single female voice in it? <laughs> of course, yeah. You also, know, that, that that's a, an impossible bet. Mm. I mean, he's he is very clever that way. He's and it's more than just clever. He's he, and it's also a very distinct world. I mean, yes, you can hear the influences but it's a very distinct world. It just isn't entirely my cup of tea stylistically, but that's quite separate from learning the profession. He knew about that, and I therefore learned a huge amount from him. So I wonder if we could close this off with just a few remarks about the present cultural moment, because obviously we have just completed a year which is absolutely unprecedented in terms of its effects on the cultural world. There's never been anything like this. I wonder how this has affected both of you personally and professionally, and what you see things looking like as we go into 2021. Personally, it's it's been it hasn't been easy because I rely on deadlines as much as anything for composing, and I found it quite difficult to compose. Um, it's quite difficult to focus on, on on composing. I've done a fair amount of arranging, actually, just just things that I've been asked to do and, and small scale pieces. But my my you know my position in this is is a is an easy one. Um, it's the professional musicians I really fear for, and I I do worry that the whole infrastructure could disappear if it goes on for for much longer. Particularly. I would have thought the opera world is, is going to suffer more than anything, but but professional 
performing musicians, orchestral musicians above all, are having a terrible time. Uh, I hope it will come out the other end, but I think it will change things. Perhaps there will be some things that will change for the better, but uh, I rather fear for the future. Yes, well, I agree. Um, there have been times when I wanted, I, I can't remember, is it a poem by Siegfried Sassoon about the First World War, where he suddenly says in frustration at the end, oh, Jesus, make it stop. Mm. <laughs> yes. And um, by the way, a line much criticised later by W.H. Auden, who, who much preferred Wilfred Owen's line that all the poet can do is, is warn. Mm. Um, the feeling of helplessness has been one thing, uh, a feeling of intense anger at certain, I think, individuals and organisations, uh, lack of thoroughness, slowness of response, but I don't envy anybody. I, and I mean outside music. I'm talking about, uh, you know, governments and things. Hmm? Um, I, I have been very frustrated by people ignoring medical advice, uh, governments not paying attention to medical warnings and advice saying you must you know, close things down now in order that you don't have to later. Uh, for example, I cannot understand why it hasn't been possible um, since June, for example, to say, look, we're going to have 10 weeks out and two weeks in and just go through that cycle to break any possible spikes and make sure that there's some control of this. I, I, so that every business and so on could plan in advance rather than springing four or five weeks or even 10 or 12 weeks of isolation on people overnight, which, which is very destructive and, and, and difficult. So one's frustration at the way that these things have been handled administratively outside of music has been sometimes intense. And of course, everyone can say from an armchair, oh, well, I would have done this or you should do that and so on. But the fact remains that a great deal of warning and advice has been offered and has been ignored. Um, and, uh, and one sees this going on and, and, and it is very, very, very frustrating and distressing. Um, then too, I'm absolutely terrified on behalf of performing colleagues who freelance performing colleagues who, who have been really devastated by this economically and, uh, um, different countries have dealt with this in different ways. And one hears that in some countries they've been, compensated better and so on. I, I really am very frightened about the effect that this is having on the music profession um, on every level of it, from string quartets through to opera houses and pretty much anything in between. Um, it is, as you say, Samuel, the first time, as far as I'm aware, in the entire history of Western music that such a sustained period uh, of, of literally not being allowed to, to have concerts. Uh, so, so in such a widespread manner, um, the in August there were some concerts in London, but not in indoors. Mostly, they were there was a marvelous series of string quartets in Battersea Park that my friend Anthony Friend organised, and I was at a few of those. They were very carefully distanced audiences, of course. Um, but I mean, I've never known anything like it, and um, it. It is also, from my point of view, as a, as a teacher of composition, one, one has to sustain students through this and give them hope and give them encouragement and give them uh, some long, longer perspective on it to try and see their way through this dis disturbance because it is very, very disturbing 
to them. But, and I also feel we have been, uh, uh, you know, incredibly lucky to have the, you know, experience we had as young people, because the young people today, are, certainly for at least 10 months, we don't know now what, what happens, um, have been deprived of some really basic musical, you know, experiences that, that, that we never had to do without. And I don't know what that has uh, for the future. I think it has very, very serious implications in the short run. I, I just don't know. Um, but I am very concerned and I'm doing everything I can to try and help. One of the things I wonder about often, and I'd like to get both of your perspectives on this, is that the idea of a total interruption of musical activity, uh, as, as, as you say, this has never happened. Uh, it didn't happen during the Blitz. It didn't happen during the, the Spanish flu epidemic. Uh, there, you have all of these famous recordings of Furtwängler uh, performing uh, in concert halls that would be bombed the next day, right? So you have you have all of these things going on in the midst of absolute chaos, but with without this uh, complete interruption of cultural life. I wonder what it is about the the present moment in which it's possible to get away with dividing different areas of human activity into essential workers and inessential workers. Because that seems to me to be a, a very delicate and dangerous thing in terms of public perception of the arts generally, that we've sort of accepted that, well, we're inessential workers, so therefore we can just go off for a year and, and, and not be heard from. Um, we had this already in the UK, Colin may correct me on this because I can't remember that, about a decade ago, there was a reform in the means by which government funded um, higher education, and there was a distinction drawn at that point, was there not, between what were regarded as essential post essential courses of of tertiary education study, meaning university level study, and what were not regarded as essential. And um, I recall that 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 was about two thousand and ten. That distinction began to be drawn, and. Um, I think it was medical studies and engineering and mathematics, I think, were regarded as essential at that point, and music and I think even languages weren't. Uh, music certainly wasn't. And I was furious about that and, and wrote, you know, signed a number of letters of protest about it um, because I think what we do is very important for society and I think it is much missed. I'm actually... I think that once we can return, whenever the vaccination program allows that, I suspect there may be a huge thirst for it and a huge hunger for it. I may be wrong. People may at first anyway be cautious because the return won't be clean and single. It's not like the end of World War II where suddenly everything's fine. Or, you know what I mean? Um, it wasn't then either, but I mean, it, it's just suddenly over. It's not like that. It'll be more gradual. But I think there may be a huge hunger for, for what we've been deprived of. And at that point, I think people may realize just how much they really do need this. I think that is the one positive thing, is, is that it does make people realize how much it is valued, what we do. And the return, certainly to live music, the fact, I mean, I've only heard one live concert this year or since March. Um, that was an extraordinary experience. And I know how much it will be valued when it returns. So that is perhaps the only upside we can put to it. So what are your projects, Colin, for when this eventually does end and we can resume concert life? What, what's next for you? Um, I'm, I don't want to admit to what I'm doing next because I'm keeping it secret. <laughs> <Is that> okay. <laughs> 
Fair enough. And how about you, Julian? I'm writing, um, well, I have written a, a couple of lockdown pieces, pieces that were possible under these conditions. Um, one of them, a clarinet solo piece called Mime, which was um, actually an arrangement of, of some clarinet music I'd done earlier, but but it's sort of redone. And the other was a song for, um, which I think you've heard, haven't you, uh, Samuel, uh, which was done for Oliver Zeffman, who got together a little yeah. scheme called oh, yes. In Isolation, and which Tom Addis and Helen Grime and other people wrote for. And I wrote a song for that setting, a text by our mutual friend Ahmed Essayad about isolation uh, under the first lockdown, in fact. Um, the, the, the project I've been working on all the way through this, and I'm still working on and hoping to finish in a few weeks, is a symphonic work. Uh, it's my second symphony, um, subtitled Prague Panoramas, and is um, it's about uh, a photograph book by Sudek, the great Czech photographer Sudek, of panoramic photographs he made of Prague in the 50s and 60s, absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. And um, that is um, is a project whose premiere has been postponed, obviously, um, but is uh, now meant to be happening in 2022. And um, I'm, I'm looking forward to finally completing that. I was going to complete it much earlier this year, but inevitably, uh, because of the change of routine, it's, it's been disrupted considerably, yeah. So that's that's what I'm doing at the moment. Yep. Well, it, it does seem to me that there is a tremendous hunger, not just on the part of performers and composers, obviously, but also audiences to resume concert life. And I'm I'm confident that when it does resume, uh, there will be a, just a tremendous burst of joy. I think that that will happen. As for the lasting changes, time will tell. But um, I certainly adhere to that hope. And... Um, I'm hugely looking forward to the return of concerts. It's been a very strange period in that respect. You've had more of them in France than here, I think. Yes, actually. Well, things seemed dramatically improved starting in early June in France and lasting until about mid to late October. So there were a number of festivals that were able to go ahead, including the Musica Festival here in Strasbourg, where I live. So there were some quite significant performances that were able to take place. I personally had a, a premiere, a rather small one, but I had a premiere nevertheless in, in Switzerland in October. So there was a time when it was possible to, to do things like that. And then, of course, very suddenly things uh, changed again. But the course of this whole thing has been obviously completely unpredictable. But I just hold out the hope that with the vaccination program that uh, things will rapidly improve, or at least, let's say, in the next three or four months. Well, I think it's possible as long as the distribution of the vaccines is done responsibly and with care. Yes. So trying to face forward with optimism, despite everything. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> 